0: Hello, this is episode 10 of the Hate Crime Files, a podcast about crimes typically involving violence motivated by prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or other grounds. I'm your host, Terrence Heath. This podcast covers disturbing events and may not be suitable for everyone. It is not recommended for children under 13. Being different in a small town can be difficult. Being gay in a small town can be dangerous. Americans have long idealized small towns and small town living. Politicians love to extol the virtues of life in these towns with populations so small that everyone practically knows everyone else, as well as everyone else's business. Where everybody knows not only your name, but your family history. Where everybody goes to one church or another and goes to dinner at the same restaurant afterward. These places are what politicians like to call real America. And they're usually small, religious, conservative, and predominantly white. Think of Andy Griffith's Mayberry, the archetypical small town. And you've just about got it. They evoke simpler times when, as Archie Bunker sang, girls were girls and men were men when everyone knew their place and stayed rooted in it. In other words, they represent the, quote, good old days. Of course, the good old days weren't great for everybody. Black people faced segregation and discrimination enshrined in law. Not to mention that lynchings still happened. Anyone suspected of being gay was regularly fired, arrested, jailed, and prosecuted. After being arrested, police often pressured an individual into giving the names of other men he knew or was sexually involved with. Address books were confiscated and scrutinized. Personal correspondence reviewed and a witch hunt would ensue. In 1955 and 58, two child sex murders led to 20 gay men in Iowa being rounded up by police, despite having nothing to do with the killings and only engaging in consensual contact with other adult men. Because of an Iowa law that lumped gays in with child molesters and murderers, These men were institutionalized as sex offenders until they were deemed cured. In 1957, in Greensboro, North Carolina, 32 men were rounded up and charged with crimes against nature. Of the 32 arrested, 24 were convicted and received sentences ranging from five to 20 years in prison. Some even ended up serving on highway chain gangs. These men were arrested and sentenced for private acts that took place behind closed doors. Police used entrapment tactics to, quote, remove these individuals from society who would prey upon our youth and to protect the town from what a presiding judge called a menace. Fast forward to the end of the 20th century and the start of the 21st, and the consequences of being gay or lesbian weren't quite as severe. The Supreme Court has long since overturned sodomy laws, which were used to entrap and criminalize gay men. Some states and municipalities prohibit employment and even housing discrimination against gay people. Just under four years ago, the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage across the country. There's been significant pushback against such progress from more conservative pockets of the country. County clerks have refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Religious conservatives have fought to legalize discrimination in public accommodations and services, against married same-sex couples. Bathroom bills echoing the hysteria of the 1950s have whipped up panic about transgender people preying on women and children in public bathrooms. The current administration elected by the electoral votes of some of the least populated states has rolled back policies that protected LGBT Americans. If Twitter is any indicator, being gay in a small town can still be tough. There's not a lot to do if you're straight and there's even less if you're gay. You can't necessarily hide it either. As Felicia Temple tweeted, being gay in a small town is like having the plague and being a celebrity at the same time. People are afraid but want to know all about it. Your neighbors may not always agree with your political views. You may not always be safe. Being gay and closeted in a small town can mean living with the fear of exposure and being vulnerable to hostility and rejection from family and community. Being out and gay can make you a target. Perhaps these two realities collided with each other in Grant Town, West Virginia in the summer of 2000. With a population of just 657 at that time, Granttown more than qualified as a small town. Just 270 households and 190 families resided in the town. The makeup of the city was 90.87% white, 7.76% African American, 0.15% Asian, and 0.30% from other races and 0.91% from two or more races Hispanic or Latino of any race were 0.46% of the population The town was small enough for the races to socialize but white residents lived on the hillside above the main street and its black citizens gathered along the creek near Popo Street A sign on the border of the town read, Grant Town, a growing, progressive community. We've always gotten along, and it's because they know their place and we know ours, said longtime resident Dorothy McLean, who is among the Grant Town residents who are African American. It's the kind of town where people know the details of each other's lives. Anyone in town can tell you who just about anyone else is. Like a lot of towns in West Virginia, its foundation was built on coal. Formed in 1901 with the federal coal and coke company, bituminous Coal Mine, it was named after the company vice president, Robert Grant. It's famous for local legends of a Bigfoot-type creature called the Granttown Goon, cited by locals since the 1970s, and is the setting of many stories in the West Virginia ghost story anthology, The Tell-Tale Lilac Bush by Fairmount State University professor Ruth Ann Music. It was a bustling little hamlet with grocery stores, bars, gas stations, and other small businesses dotting its winding, hilly streets. But when the coal mines started to shut down in the mid-80s, most of the businesses followed suit. People who could afford it moved away. Those who couldn't or wouldn't move away made do. But in 2000, Granttown became famous for something else. The murder of a gay man drew the national spotlight to the small coal mining town. Arthur J.R. Warren was a 26-year-old African-American gay man who resided in Granttown, West Virginia. He lived with his parents, and his 16-year-old sister, Audra, on Pawpaw Street, nestled between the main road and the railroad tracks that's home to most of Granttown's black residents. His mother, Virginia, worked as a sales clerk at the Ames Department Store outside Fairmont. His father, Arthur, was a coal miner who was unable to work due to a motorcycle accident that mangled his leg. On July 3, 2000, Arthur Warren was murdered by two teenage white males in what is believed to have been a hate crime. He was born prematurely, arriving three months early and weighing in at just two pounds and six ounces. A congenital disability caused him to have three fingers missing on one hand. Warren also lived with learning disabilities. He was widely known in his community as a soft-spoken young man. With his parents, Warren was a regular churchgoer and attended the Missionary Baptist Assembly, which split from the Southern Baptists over support for slavery. He came out to his mother and the minister at his church at 16 and found acceptance and support with both. The tight-knit community warmly embraced him. Most of them were the Warren family's neighbors. He struggled with being gay, said Brenda Warren. He didn't understand why he felt the way he did about men. Brenda Warren described her eldest son as a gentle soul. He liked singer Jody Watley as well as spiritual songs. He loved to read his sister's poetry. At church he served on the usher board and recorded sermons for shut-in members. The Warrens sent two other children to college, but Arthur went to a special school in a nearby town and then returned to Granttown and walked the streets in search of someone to talk with. He worked briefly at a local fast food shop, but spent most of his life unemployed and living in his parents' home on Paw Street. He also attended meetings of a gay student group at nearby Fairmount State College. At 26, Warren looked and acted younger than his age. He had a slight build, standing about 5 foot 10 inches and weighing just 125 pounds. As he was growing up, his classmates teased him for being wimpy and sissy-like. The taunting followed him into adulthood. On at least one occasion, several months before his death, Warren was roughed up. Other times he was jeered at and called faggot or queer. We worried about him because we knew what people could be like, said Brenda Warren. He would be taunted, but J.R. was not the type to fight back. My baby didn't even know how to fight. In the months before his death, Warren was hospitalized several times with anxiety attacks and unexplained seizures. Granttown was a place where personal business was hard to keep secret. People are either extremely closeted or out. There's no gray area, said Reverend Brenda Dunn, who once served as pastor of the gay-friendly Metropolitan Community Church in nearby Morgantown. Nobody had a kind word for J.R. until he was dead, Larry Merico, the former police chief, said. People used to point him out, They'd say, there goes that black faggot son of a bitch. He better never hurt one of my kids. Eight years earlier, Warren had telephoned a friend and told him he was gay and lonely. He was sent north to Pittsburgh to the Metropolitan Community Church in Shadyside. Dunn, who was pastor of the church by then, remembered him stopping in a few times. However, Warren soon returned to his post as an usher at the Mount Beulah Baptist Church in Granttown. I said, J.R., you need to get out of this little town, said Richard Ravenscroft, a local white musician. Ravenscroft, 49, was the first person to whom Warren confided that he was gay, and the two were friends throughout Warren's adult life. You need to get a vehicle and just get out of this place, Ravencroft said. But Warren, he said, just wouldn't leave his town. Around these parts, it's like you don't ask and you don't tell, said Ravenscroft. J.R. was black and homosexual. Need I say more? He was gentle and kind, Ravenscroft said. And he was a timid boy. Someone might hit him one day and call him all sorts of names, Ravencroft said. Then the next day, if they said they wanted to be friends again, he'd say, okay. Friends say Warren kept a sense of humor when teased about his sexuality. Everybody made fun of him, but he made fun of himself, too. He laughed right along with them, said 18-year-old Janice Martin. He joked around and didn't get upset. You never saw J.R. get upset about anything. Merico, who repairs lawnmowers in his retirement years, was on the main street the last day of June when he noticed Warren walking by. As usual, they greeted each other. Merico says, though, that he tried to warn the young man to be careful. He said, oh, nobody's gonna bother me. I told him, J.R., I told you before, honey, you're always gonna to have to watch, Mariko says. Warren left his parents home around eleven thirty PM on july third, two thousand to watch the fourth of July fireworks in Granttown. His mother said she reminded him of his twelve thirty AM curfew, and he told her he'd be back in an hour. He left his house on Pawpaw Street which is called Black Bottom by some of the town's white residents because it's at the bottom of town, and most of Granttown's black residents lived there in small bungalows with tiny yards. When Warren had not returned home by 2.30 a.m., his mother assumed he was spending the night at a friend's. He walked up Main Street with its soda machines and empty storefronts and made a right turn to 101 View Avenue, a one-level wood frame house famous as the home of where the father of Olympic and gold medalist Mary Lou Retton grew up. Instead of attending fireworks, Warren went to meet with 17-year-old David Parker, an acquaintance at the empty house owned by Parker's family. Parker was painting the house along with his 17 year old cousin Jared Wilson and Jared's 15 year old friend Jason Shoemaker. The three boys had hung out together since childhood. The two older boys, David in particular, had a reputation as troublemakers in the school and the neighborhood. At the house, the three drank beer, smoked marijuana, and huffed gasoline fumes, inhaling them to get high. Parker reportedly asked Warren to bring cigarettes and Xanax, the latter of which was prescribed to Warren as an anti-anxiety medication. Warren allegedly brought both cigarettes and Xanax to the house, where the three boys began to crush and snort the tablets. People who knew Warren described him as a people-pleaser, even going out of his way to fulfill the requests of someone like David, whom many remembered, having heard call Warren faggot and queer. Taking Xanax, if it's not prescribed, can have adverse effects including hostility, irritability, and excitability. Those effects can be aggravated further when the drug is snorted, as it's more potent when ingested that way. Add alcohol and volatile personalities to the mix and you've got a recipe for real trouble. So it's no surprise that an argument ensued at the house. Parker accused Warren of spreading a rumor that the two had a sexual relationship. Warren denied doing so. The Associated Press reported that sources close to the story said that Parker and Warren had a sexual relationship and that Warren had also had a sexual relationship with Wilson. Marion County Prosecutor G. Richard Brunner later said the allegations of sexual activity were hearsay. The AP stood by its story. Parker's attorney would then claim that Parker had been sexually involved with Warren 30 times since he was 10 years old and that Warren had given Parker drugs and alcohol before most of their encounters. Things cooled down and Warren stepped into another room with Parker leaving his wallet and cigarette lighter in the room with the other two boys. When Warren returned, his lighter was gone and $20 was missing from his wallet. Wilson angrily denied, taking the money, calling Warren a dumb nigger. At some point during the argument, Parker and Wilson began beating Warren and kicking him with steel-toed boots. Shoemaker witnessed the beating but did not participate. Court documents record that Parker later said Shoemaker egged him on to confront Warren. It's unlikely that Warren, a gentle-natured young man who weighed just 125 pounds, offered much resistance. Everybody who knew this child knew he wouldn't fight, his father said. If you hit him, he wouldn't hit back. The beating continued on the porch of the house, and outside. At one point, Parker said, I cracked his skull. Somebody call 911. I'm not gonna do it, said Jared. The assault ended quickly. Neighbors in a trailer home just 20 feet away said they heard nothing that night. No one called 911. Instead, the three boys put a bloodied Warren In the hatchback of Parker's Chevy Camaro. Parker drove and Shoemaker sat in the front seat while Wilson sat in the back with Warren. Warren was still conscious. He apparently tried to crawl into the back seat of the Camaro and Wilson kept pushing him back. Warren repeatedly asked them to take him home. Among the last things he said was, are you taking me home? Please take me home." Near the edge of town, Parker and Wilson removed Warren's body from the car and placed it in the road while Shoemaker remained in the vehicle. Parker then ran over Warren with his car a total of four times to disguise the death as a hit and run. The three boys then returned to the house, cleaned up the blood, and disposed of their bloodied clothes by burning them with gasoline. Parker then huffed the fumes from the gas. Shoemaker went home but not before Parker and Wilson told him that he'd wind up dead too if he told anyone what they'd done. A newspaper carrier discovered Warren's body at 5:30 a.m. on July 4th by the side of West Virginia Route 17 in Granttown near the sign that read, Grant Town, A Growing Progressive Community. Though threatened with death by Parker and Wilson if he revealed the murder, Shoemaker called his mother, Norma Shoemaker, during her night shift on staff in the emergency room at Ruby Memorial Hospital and told her about the killing. Norma Shoemaker called the police later that morning, Police had initially believed Warren was the victim of a hit-and-run accident, but switched to a homicide investigation upon receiving Norma Shoemaker's call. Parker and Wilson were arrested while attending an Independence Day celebration with their families. They were reported to have confessed to Warren's murder. Because the suspects were minors, law enforcement officers were prohibited from discussing the content of their confessions. Brenda and Arthur Warren only learned of their son's death when the Chief of Police William Gower came to their house asking when Warren had left the night before. Only after asking about their son did Gower tell the Warrens that he had been found dead and his body identified. The West Virginia Lesbian and Gay Coalition led the call for local law enforcement to classify the murder as a hate crime saying Warren had told a local support group that local youths had harassed him, calling him faggot and queer. As someone who knew J.R., I urge local law enforcement officials to consider sexual orientation in this case or to let the community know why it has been ruled out, said Angela Dunlap, leader of a gay and lesbian support group at Fairmont State College. Marion County Sheriff Ron Watkins said there was no evidence that Warren's murder was a hate crime, but that law enforcement officials had not ruled out the possibility. Sheriff Watkins later met with the president of the Fairmont State College Gay Lesbian and Bisexual Student Group, of which Warren was a member even though he did not attend the college. The Human Rights Campaign joined students in advising law enforcement officials on the possibility that Warren's murder was a hate crime. To groups like the NAACP and HRC, Warren's case was like a horrific cross between James Byrd, the black victim of the truck-dragging murder in Jasper, Texas, and Wyoming gay-bashing victim Matthew Shepard. The Human Rights Campaign dispatched a team of investigators to Granttown and later arranged for the Warrens to visit the Justice Department's Office of Civil Rights in Washington, which sparked an inquiry by that agency. By all accounts, Warren was a slight man with a gentle demeanor, who was chronically harassed because he was gay, said Elizabeth Birch, executive director of the Human Rights Campaign. To rule out biased motivation based on his sexual orientation or race seems premature at best and irresponsible at worst. Hundreds of mourners attended Arthur Warren's funeral on July 8, 2000 at Mount Beulah Baptist Church. His parents, Brenda and Arthur Warren, insisted that the coffin be open for viewing. We want people to see what they did to my son, said Brenda Warren. His lips sliced with cuts and covered with dried blood, his cheeks bruised, his forehead swollen and protruding like a water balloon. One might be forgiven for being reminded of the lynching victim Emmett Till's appearance in his coffin. The Warrens later told CNN during an interview that they hoped the suspects would be tried as adults and murder, and the murder treated as a hate crime. The Warrens also asked the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate their son's death. A regional FBI office in Pittsburgh reviewed the evidence and determined that there was no reason the case would fall under federal jurisdiction. Nonetheless, U.S. Deputy Attorney General Eric Holder agreed to meet with the Warrens in Washington. Human Rights Campaign, the nation's largest Lesbian and Gay Political Organization said Warren's sexual orientation and race motivated the teenagers to attack him. The organization said the murder should be considered a hate crime. If it's not hate, what is it? A tearful Brenda Warren told CNN. Two vigils were held in Warren's honor on June 11th, one by the West Virginia Lesbian and Gay Coalition at the West Virginia State Capitol, and one in front of the Marion County Courthouse by the Fairmont State College Gay and Lesbian Student Group. More than 600 people attended the Marion County Vigil. Local clergy spoke and joined members of the Warren family. In life, Warren's sexuality was understood but kept quiet in a typically small town manner. But Reverend Nason Staples III broke the silence when he called on members not to judge Warren's homosexuality. There are people who wrestle with their sexual orientation. If you've never had to wrestle, he shouted, if you've never had to weep because you feel one thing and the book says another thing, you don't know. A handful of protesters from the family of Fred Phelps, leader of Westboro Baptist Church, which had been identified by the Southern Poverty Law Center as an active hate group in Topeka, Kansas, also attended. Gay and lesbian students from West Virginia University carried white banners to block the view of the protesters. On July 19, 2001, David Parker pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and in July 2001 was sentenced to life in prison with mercy which would make him eligible for parole in 15 years. In exchange for his plea, a second count of conspiracy to commit a felony was dismissed. Parker also agreed to testify against Wilson. On August 21, 2001, Jared Wilson pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, reduced from first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit a felony. And received a 20-year prison sentence. Shoemaker was charged as an accessory after the fact and tried as a juvenile for helping dispose of evidence after the murder. In June 2002 Brenda and Arthur Warren filed a wrongful death lawsuit against their son's killers. Their family attorney Paul Farrell said that in defending themselves Parker and Wilson had portrayed Warren as a sexual predator and themselves as the victims and that Mrs. Warren didn't feel like she had had the chance to tell her side of the story. After his death, Warren's mother addressed a hate crimes rally in Washington, D.C. and lobbied for the inclusion of sexual orientation in West Virginia's hate crimes law. Davis was denied parole in 2016. In 2017, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the Marion County Court's decision and declined to hear an appeal by Parker. He argued to the Supreme Court that the West Virginia Board of Probation and Parole violated his due process and liberty interests. The court ruled there was no substantial question of law and no prejudicial error when a habeas corpus hearing was held in Marion County in 2016 and he was denied his freedom. The court further found that the parole board did not make any errors when it denied him parole in 2016. Parker claimed that he no longer shows a propensity for further violence, made significant improvements, and demonstrated maturity while incarcerated. However, court records indicated that the parole board considered Parker's educational and court documents, his participation in rehabilitative and educational programs, and his age and maturity at the time of the crime, and decided that he was not an adequate candidate for parole. The Hate Crime Files is researched, written, produced and hosted by Terence Heath. That's me. Thanks for listening. And to all my listeners and subscribers, thanks again for your support. I'll be back with another episode on the 1st of the month. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please subscribe. Tell your friends and family about it and consider leaving a positive review at iTunes Podcast or wherever you listen to podcast until next time be careful out there and be good to each other